Have you ever wondered why your favorite taco is costing you an arm and a leg these days? Or is your dream couch still in back order status for months now? Join us as we go behind the scenes of the global supply chain. Let us discuss and understand its complexity and learn from the industry leaders, professionals, and subject matter experts. Expect in-depth analysis and genuine conversations about the major issues affecting the supply chain today. Welcome to Supply Chain Demystified. Your host is none other than the distinguished supply chain expert, Dr. Nick Viaz. Professor Viaz is the academic director of USC Marshall Global Supply Chain Management and founding executive director of USC Marshall Randall R. Kendrick Global Supply Chain Institute. Yeah, so let's carry that on because, you know, a lot of conversations globally, and I have often written and spoken about it. But I started out saying the decoupling of supply chain. You talked about how when spoke that uh, different nodes carry different activities. But there was a super node that we created over the last 30 years. That super node was China, became the world's manufacturing hub. And that node became so large that we became overly dependent on one node. And obviously, uh, that got exposed during the COVID. And you can change the word. You know, European ministries are now uh, renaming the decouplings that I would mm-hmm. call decouplings of supply chain network design to de-risking. That yeah. trend has suddenly begun. How do you see that decoupling, de-risking uh, with the, uh, in terms of the maritime industry, the flow? Do you see that the, the cross-continental flow will continue or do you think there'll be a lot more intercontinental cargo volume uh, over the next decades, two or three? Yeah, I mean, what, what I see, I, I tend to more call it a diversification of the supply chain because in reality, that's that's what's going to happen. Interestingly, this was slowly beginning to happen before the pandemic. Uh, the pandemic, and especially this reliance on China, when China then remained closed for quite a while, is just going to accelerate that trend. But the diversification that was already slowly beginning to happen was I wouldn't say a mass exodus out of China because that's not what is happening. It's more a matter of when you need to ramp up production capabilities. If you're already in China, you don't want to do it more in China. You want to do it somewhere else. That was already slowly beginning to move to places around Southeast Asia. It's going to move to places like Bangladesh. It's going to move to places like India. There has then been a lot of talk, and let's just address that one. We're going to see nearshoring, not to a material degree. Um, why don't I believe you're going to see that to a material degree? At the end of the day, it boils down to money. And pre-COVID, and also now it normalizes, the cost of the supply chain, specifically the cost of the ocean container shipping, is all is insignificant for most cargo types, not for all cargo types, which means at the end of the day, where you produce stuff is less determined by the cost of the supply chain. It's more determined by what are the manufacturing costs and conditions in different countries? And that's where Southeast Asia and the Indian subcontinent is going to emerge as ever more uh, conducive to place your production in. That means you're still going to have the deep sea ships. Fewer of them might then call China. Then they will just call the nodes in Singapore, in Sri Lanka, in Jebel Ali, in the different places around Asia. It will still be the same ships, which is actually, again, 
shows the versatility of the supply chain. You use the same ships, but now they'll just go to slightly different locations. The short-term risk for everybody doing that is if this diversification goes fast, there might be a tendency of, oh, this is great. I'm going to move to, let's just make up an example. Let's go to this place in Cambodia because that is wonderful. But the port infrastructure in those places might not yet be geared for that level of growth. So you might end up with temporary bottlenecks in some of those places. That will gradually also resolve itself. You will see more port projects across the wider realm of Asia catering to this. But that is the direction the supply chain is going in. That was the direction it was going already. I've seen it under different headlines. Let's say the last six months, some calls it China plus one. Some will use the word French shoring rather than near shoring it. It's all variations over the same theme, this diversification of the supply chain. Well, let's talk about that uh, because, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, I've written substantially about the decouplings without deglobalization, right? And I called it uh, spade for spade because I do think that the supply chain network can no longer be this long linear string that we have established over the last three decades because it, it, it solely focuses on singular dimension, which is the cost and profitability. Mm-hmm. We design, and, and I believe that I think one lesson aboard, and I've spoken to quite a few uh, Fortune 100 companies, CEOs, and the board members, that their, their focus is like, we can no longer repeat for the sake of our shareholder and stakeholders, the same mistakes that COVID exposed us, because that would be shamed, right? So what they're looking at, what I call the triple bottom line, that how you design something that delivers resiliency, efficiency, and the most critically, the sustainability. So let's put from that triple bottom line mindset. Do you think the maritime industry and your work is leading them to help shape those conversations somewhat fruitfully to say, hey, we can help you. You don't always have to come for at least some skew, some items, some commodity that can be actually uh, sort of regionally, the nodes can be close to your home, close to the customer, reducing the carbon footprint. How does that equation and mindset can play into the maritime industry? That is where I'm, some would call me cynical. I would call myself a realist at times. I see that as nice and fancy words and aspirations, but that's not what's going to happen in reality for a number of reasons. Uh, Let's try to decompose a lot of these. First of all, what lesson, if we look at it from a financial perspective first, then we can look at the environmental angle afterwards. What lesson should we learn from the pandemic? Was it a mistake to rely on these long supply chains that then got disrupted? I would venture the word absolutely not. The lesson we should learn was we had the right supply chain. However, the mistake most companies do is they're too short-sighted. For many importers, was it extremely expensive, especially in 21 and in 22? Absolutely, yes, it was because of the uh, all the bottlenecks there. However, how much money did they save in the preceding 20 years? when freight rates were low. 
And if you start to break that one down and say, well, if you don't want to have the bottlenecks you ran into, what kind of overcapacity do you need in the system? Or how much more do you want to pay for nearshoring? Then you arrive at the point where, seen in a 20-year perspective, we actually had the right setup. Yes, it hurt on the bottom line for two years. Absolutely, it did. No question about it. But seen in a longer perspective, you can argue it was financially the right thing to do. So the lesson we should learn is not necessarily that the supply chain was wrong, but we might have the wrong focus on what are the financial risks? What's the time frame companies should operate under when they look at this? Should they set something aside for a rainy day? That might actually be a much better idea. If we then go to the environmental angle, there are several things that are going to play into this. Are the container shipping lines, I mean, I, I'm, I don't deal with the bulkers and tankers, are they going to decarbonize? Absolutely, yes, they are. And they're going to decarbonize as rapidly as they can. Not because of the environment. The environment will get the benefit, absolutely. But the key driver, again, is going to be money. The way to think about this is, if you want to decarbonize a ship, now clearly you you're not going to be able to electrify it. You're going to need some type of green fuel. It doesn't really matter whether it's going to be methanol or ammonia or hydrogen or whatever variations you have. The core is this. You're shifting to a green fuel. The green fuel, let's just use methanol as an example. I can produce that from any energy source. I can produce it from solar. I can produce it from wind. I can produce it from nuclear. I could also produce it by burning whole and old racks. It doesn't really matter. But here's the financial incentive. If just one carrier, and now we have multiple, start to go down this path, it means at the end of the day, when you have such a fleet, you become independent of the energy source. That will allow you at all points in time to buy the cheapest possible energy. So you will force the whole industry down that path, because otherwise, I might be exposed to a much more expensive energy source than everybody else. So that's why they're going to do it, and also why they're going to do it as rapidly as possible. The bottleneck here is not the shipping lines. The bottleneck is the fuel providers. That's the problem. You are going to need hundreds of millions of tons for container shipping alone of green fuel. Then you're also going to need it for the airlines and for the bulk ships and everything else. This is going to take decades to ramp up that production capacity, but that's more on the, on the fuel side. So the supply chain itself is going to get green. The next thing we need to keep in mind, the carbon footprint of moving, let's say, a container full of shoes from China over to the US is incredibly tiny. I would venture the view that the carbon footprint on a pair of shoes manufactured in China and sold in a Walmart somewhere in the US, the footprint of that is less than the footprint made by the consumer driving down to Walmart to buy it and driving back home. <clears throat> I mean, and that's a, a good perspective, Lars. So to, let's go back to your point about the demand of this greener fuel, right? That uh, by the liners, actually that's a constraint, that's a bottleneck. But the one would actually argue that if we reduce the greater demand by shortening the supply chain? Could that actually reduce the, the demand side equation for the cleaner, uh, 
the green fuel, right? I mean, so <laughs> what if we were to look at it from the shorter supply chain? And you, you, you could, but then you're going to run into again practical life, because if you want a shorter supply chain, first of all, you want to operate that with smaller vessels. Smaller vessels burn a lot more fuel per container; they are less fuel efficient. You can then argue we should build new short ships, but then that's an environmental impact. You got a an armada of huge ships, which you would then scrap. What's the environmental footprint associated with that? You simply don't have the fleet for it. That's also part of the challenge. Again, moving on a giant ship is enormously fuel efficient, but if you're producing in Costa Rica and wants to ship this one up to say Texas, you can't use those ships for that. You need to use much smaller ships. And much smaller ships have a much larger footprint. So let, let's wrap up this uh, geopolitical subject because you, you appear to be very calm and composed about sort of not seeing this as a major trend that one should worry about it, which I'm on the opposing camp to say mm-hmm. this new, what I call the new world disorder, where you have these two massive forces and its allies trying to shape the global trade in somewhat different ways. So if you look at it, US and the Western democracies versus China, and it's now becoming ever so big uh, affiliates mm. such as now the Saudis and Iran has joined the Brazil yeah. and, and these competitive forces. I, in my view, I subscribe to the thought that last four decades of peaceful global trade is somewhat being reshaped. Your thoughts, oh. Marcia? No, I mean, um, I will certainly agree that uh, it is being reshaped. It's going to be reshaped even more. Part of that is also driven by demographics. Um, maybe just to tie the demographic part back to where we talked about before, if we talk, we talked about nearshoring, but to nearshore production, you need a labor force. We got an aging labor force in Europe. We got an aging labor force in North America. Where's the labor force growing? That's Africa. It's uh, the Indian subcontinent. It's those places. So production will move to where you can find workers. Uh, That's one part of it. Are you then going to see a shifting power? Absolutely, you are. But that, again, is the beauty of a lot of the supply chain. Ships don't really care which countries they go to. Does we, we then have the potential of a geopolitical strife wreaking havoc on the supply chain? In theory, yes. In practice, not so much. Let's again take a practical example. China has for years now been pursuing what they call the Belt and Road Strategy. They have been building up their container carrier, Costco. Costco is the world's fourth largest carrier, absolutely. But they're only able to carry a fraction of the cargo that China needs to move anyhow. So you can argue a Chinese approach where they will suddenly say, we will only move on Chinese ships. That would just bankrupt China more or less overnight because they wouldn't be able to physically do it. Nobody really controls it. Maybe to take a, a genuinely contrarian view here, because I have heard at least over the last year or so a concern, typically from US, saying, what might China do to us in the future? The first thing to realize is China only controls a tiny fraction of the capacity you need anyway. That That's one part. But maybe there's another way to look at it. You're worried what China might do to you. Let's flip that one around. What should China worry about? If I was sitting in China, here's how I would view the world. This is not a future threat. I'm being impacted already. Seen from a Chinese perspective, 
China had a lot of trade going with Russia. A lot of the Chinese trade to the European parts of Russia went on container ships to Russian ports. When the Russia-Ukraine war started, Europe and North America launched sanctions against Russia. It became de facto impossible to send containerized cargo the usual routes from China to Russia because the transshipment nodes in Europe wouldn't take them. That was fine seen from a Western perspective. Seen from a Chinese perspective, this was the West already using an economic weapon. This was the West using a supply chain weapon against them already. So what we fear China might do to us, seen from their perspective, we are already doing that to them. And that is why, as part of also the Belt and Road, what I do see a potential for over the coming, let's say, five to 10 years is a bifurcation of the supply chain, that the Chinese will increasingly focus on building up an efficient supply chain pipeline using Costco, using some of the terminal assets they have acquired over the last 10 years. Because from their perspective, that would create some resilience for them in the face of what they see the West do to them. So, so there are multiple different perspectives we need to take into account here. All right, that's that's an excellent narrative, uh, Lars. You you brought uh, sort of a very unique uh, dimensions to this conversation. Obviously, the Western media is often see this from the one perspective, but appreciate you sort of striking uh, that balance. But so let's stay tuned for the next demystifying discussion on the supply chain. Visit uscsupplychain.com to stay up to date on all things supply chain.